discussing all the great and courageous work that she is currently engaged in. And if you feel inspired to help her with these efforts, please consider making a donation earmarked for her projects. Or feel free to give a general donation that will support the wider movement in Myanmar. Our ongoing support is so helpful and appreciated by the Burmese people during these dark days. Simply go to insightmyanmar.org donation to contribute today. Or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. Now, let's hear from that guest herself. First January. Usually I would keep my mobile into do not disturb mode and go to sleep. But on that particular night, I had a strange thought come in and I was like, I will not turn uh, do not disturb mode in case there is an emergency call to receive. Then the next morning, I woke up with a call from a friend and he started asking me, are you awake? I told him that I wasn't, but I'm okay to talk. He then replied me in a very shaky voice that it happened. At first, I didn't understand what he mean by it happened. So I asked him again. 
Then he replied, "It happened, and Tisu was arrested." At that moment, I went completely shocked. I don't know what to reply, but with a heavy sigh, I replied, "So the coup happened. It actually happened." Because before first of February, there were a lot of speculations whether there will be coup or not, but we didn't really believe that it it would happen. And at that moment of speaking, the first thought that came into my mind was that my country would go into chaos with a lot of political and economical instability, and we will get arbitrarily arrested and get tortured by the dictatorship any time. I felt really sad, hopeless, and frightened. Since me and him do not know what will happen next, my friend was so concerned about my safety because I live alone. So he told me that he will come to pick me up in the next twenty minutes.、Um, it was around five thirty in the morning, and all the phone line signals seems to、um, not working. So I try to. Uh, reach out to my friends and family from Mandalay, Shan State, and Magui, and all those regions. The signal seems already interrupted. I couldn't call home anymore. Then I tried to call a friend in Yangon, tell her what happened. She was she was asleep, so she wasn't aware that Antisu was already arrested and the coup actually happened. So I asked her to withdraw the money from the ATM as much as possible, because with this. You know, situation. I wouldn't know whether we would be able to withdraw the money、um, in the morning or、uh, in the next few days. Then, after a while, I hopped onto the taxi. We were driving to our、um, friend's home, and on the way, we stopped at the ATM machine and tried to withdraw the money as much as we can. So, when I arrived at the apartment, my friend's apartment, another friend was waiting. So, three of us. Was quietly sitting there, and it was so clear that we all were very frustrated. We couldn't have a conversation just silently sitting at the corner. And around six thirty in the morning, we both decided to go to the、um, local market. We all were living in the downtown, so we went to the market, and the market was completely packed with people queuing and shouting to buy the commodities. You know that was the scene of panic buying, and we were also one of them, because we were worried if we don't buy this morning, in the next few days there will be no more food to buy, and we also think thought we cannot leave the house due to the security reasons. So we bought the things and we came back. Around around two p.m. in that afternoon. There was a pro-military convoy of car passing by our apartment, and those people were chanting pro-military songs, cheering and, and dancing.、Um, at, at that moment, I think it was the first time in that day I was completely consumed by the sadness. I feel really angry, and tears just burst into my eyes. I couldn't believe that there were people actually supporting the military coup and. And you know, still cheering and chanting. And so, the day went by, and for the next five days, three of us just spent quietly in our own apartment,、uh, so concerned about the security issue. And but we we couldn't do anything. We don't know what to do. So, each of us keep praying on our own way. 
so that our democratically elected outer state government could um, regain the power and begin the parliament section soon. Wow. So um, I think we've seen since since the 1st of February, we saw food shortages and we saw you know ATMs not distributing money and we've seen limitations on money changing. So your reactions, uh, I think, were very prescient. You, you saw the disaster that was that was happening. And you clearly other people also saw the disaster because they were in the markets and they were trying to stock up on food. Uh, everybody, everybody understood that that this is a catastrophe. So, the the thing that shocks me and what you've said is seeing a, a convoy of pro military supporters, you know, singing and and yelling. What 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 do you think is going through their minds? Why do you think they were celebrating this? What did they think was going to happen here? I I think um, they believe that uh, the previous election was um, has a voter fraud. So so the previously the elected government it is they they just won the election with the false voting. And I also think they have been framed or brainwashed so much by the military that um, only the military is the only institution that could drive the country forward. And I personally believe that people who were chanting and cheering on the convoy of cars are somehow related to the military. And they set up that scene. They set up so that those people can come out to the street and cheering because at that time it is a COVID, COVID, uh, has been, um, surging in the country. We cannot really go out, gather with a crowd, you know, do this kind of things. So if, if we break the COVID-19 law, we, uh, there will be, um, we will be abided by the rules and regulation. But for those people, they could just roam around the entire city and doing. So I think they are somehow related to the military and they believe that the military uh, has done the right thing, which is cool. I mean, it's terrifying. And I think the irony, the horrible irony here is that Wu um, Wenmin was being charged in court for supposedly breaking COVID regulations uh, during his campaign. And yet, as you say, for, for these military supporters, uh, apparently, you know, COVID regulations don't matter. It, it doesn't exist. Um, so I want to go back to just one one thing at the very beginning. You know, you said your friend told you that it happened and you were, you were shocked it actually happened. We saw before the coup uh, on, the, on the 1st of February, we saw some of these movements on the Wednesday and the Thursday of the previous week. We saw the military moving into Nepidor. We saw the military giving some very scary statements on the Tuesday and the Wednesday. How how worried were you in the week before the coup? Honestly, I was a bit concerned, but I seriously didn't think that they have the gut, they have the leverage to do so. Um, I thought... Auntie Sue and her government somehow make the agreement behind the scene 
so that the military coup wouldn't happen, but they will share the power or uh, collaborate, you know, in some way, somehow, but we ordinary people wouldn't know. I think there was a trade-off between um, the government and the military before the uh, 2021 uh, parliament section begin. So I, I thought that was a possibility, but I did not think it would actually happen. Mm. And I think it, it, it came as a shock to, to I think all of us, you know, um, we, we all thought like they, they can't be this crazy, but uh, since then we've learned that they are. And, and one of the first ways that we learned this was the reaction, the very aggressive reaction that they had to the protests. So protests began immediately. Uh, protests began in the very first week and they very quickly started facing backlash from the police and, and, and later from the military. And I know that you were involved with those early um, protests in Yangon. So can, can you tell us about your experiences there? Yeah. Um, so before the coup, um, I was just an you know ordinary person who was working in the development fields and not-for-profit um, organizations. So person, from uh, personal and professional experience, I do not have any uh, background related to politics or human rights because my passion is to work towards the sustainable livelihood development and to empower the youths and marginalized women. So these are my passion and these are what I have been working. However, when the coup happened, my priority had shift to commit myself in the revolution to restore the democracy, stability and justice. I cannot really accept the fact that this military removed the democratically elected government however they want without respecting our people vote and rule of law. And what it was, I cannot find any justice for the military forces to arbitrarily arrest the elected members of parliament, politicians and activists as soon as they unlawfully took the power on the first day. Many people have already been arrested. So this is how I feel motivated to involve in the uh, protests and then later join the protest network that I'm currently with. So um, during the first three days of the coup, there were a lot of debates on not to do an open protest with the reasoning that responsibility to protect R2P cannot revoke if uh, people start going out to the street and protest. But for me personally, I do not believe in that idea. And I was on the side that we need to do a peaceful protest and demand to get back our democratically elected government. But I didn't know how to start. And honestly, I was also very scared to do it alone. I have no idea where to begin. But um, a good thing happened. On the 3rd of February, the first protest started in Mandalay and in Yangon. And in the group, I saw a familiar pray, uh, face and uh, I was like, okay, this is a good thing. I found someone that I can contact. So at night, I sent him a message saying that I really admire what he was doing and what the group on that day was doing. And if there, if anything that I can support or do, I am very committed to do so. So I left the note. And um, at that time, I didn't get a reply from him yet. 
But after uh, on the um, first week of February, people start going out to protest. So, uh, starting from the seventh of February, I see many people came out to the street for the mass protest. So since then, I joined to those protests rallies. I go to the downtown by myself sometimes, or sometimes a friend accompany. Um, to to do the protest movement. So at the same time, a person that I contacted from the protest group um, replied me that um, he he's glad that I contacted him and they need a committed people, especially women, to involve in the revolution. And he asked me that if I could come and meet him and the group in a designated place. Uh, I wasn't sure what I would be doing when I meet the group and him, and who were the group members. Uh, what is the situation be like in that apartment? Um, I was there were a lot of concerned and confusioned. Uh, I've I've already contacted him, but should I really move ahead? But anyway, uh, finally I decided that I would go to see him and see how it goes. Okay, so be before we talk about that, you, you actually touched on a, a very interesting point. You were talking about people's uh, concerns about the responsibility to protect. And that was a very strong theme in the early days of the protest movement, this idea that, well, international law recognizes the responsibility to protect. They understand that if an armed military uh, attacks unarmed civilians, there is a, an ethical duty to intervene and protect those civilians. Uh, I'm wondering, did, did you and did the people around you at the time imagine that there would be a swift United Nations response or US response or European response uh, to the coup? Or what were, you, what were you afraid would happen with, with responsibility to protect? For, for me, I personally do not think that United Nations or European or United States would intervene immediately to solve this problem. And I also personally do not believe that I could or we could rely on United Nations to eventually solve the problem. I. Uh, since I, I do not have a politics background, I try to, you know, search information uh, to explore how R2V was provoked in the in other countries, what are the procedure, how long does it take, what are the requirements, and after reading a few, you know, a few dozen pages, I think uh, my, what I thought before that R2V cannot really happen in country and United Nations doesn't have much power to, to solve the problem. So I was like, um, the coup happened and this is our responsibility, people of Myanmar, to fight for it and to restore the democracy and human rights. I think we need to do it by ourselves if the foreign our country the United Nations provides support, it is good. It is like a bonus, but we need to do it by ourselves on our own way because we understand the situation better than anyone else, you know. 
Mm. Yeah, this is my opinion. I like it. Um, I think it, it it was a very it was a very difficult realization for a lot of people that uh, the international community was not helping, and and even if they want to help, they move extremely slowly. Uh, so it was very sad to see that that realization happening. Uh, another thing that you mentioned, though, is that you you were initially hesitant to join these protests. You reach out to this person who's protesting, um, but even after you get that invitation, you're a little bit hesitant. You said you said you were scared to start a protest, and that you weren't sure of joining one. What exactly was going through your mind at this time? What what fears did you have? Um, my fear is maybe a little bit funny although i contacted that person i i know him just very briefly i met him one of the trainings it happened in the past and i due to some reasons his personality i don't want to get close to him so i keep him distance but when the coup happened i see he actually you know involved in the movement and i just have this instinct that um, regardless of any reasons that I experienced in the past in the class, he he seems to be very committed and in this movement. So I contacted him, but I barely know him. And then there will be other people in the group. So in during this the revolution time, you you don't know who to trust, right? At at the same time, you know that when you are doing this kind of anti-protest movement, you know anti-coup activities you are already at risk by the military to take you away anytime. And when you work for for that kind of activities, you really want to work with someone that you you know for a long time, you know that you can trust them, you know that you guys are like-minded people that so that you can have an open discussions and things. But I do not have that kind of advantages. I do not know those groups. And and at the same time, I I feel that I do not have um, any background from the politics or human rights, or I do not know how to do a political analysis. So am I capable of joining this group? Will I become a burden? What could I do? I, these are the main reasons that I become hesitant to join the group at, at the at the first time. And I think I think those make sense. Uh... And I think in a lot of ways, the, the revolution and the coup have really shown people's true colors. And some people have, have managed to surprise us in very positive ways uh, by showing the contributions that they can make. But I want to talk about the way in which the protests started turning. We saw even in February, uh, we saw reports coming out from certain cities that they were not only employing water cannons against protesters, but water cannons with chemicals added to them. Uh, we saw rubber bullets being being fired at at protesters uh, in in places like Munjua and and um, and Mandalay. Obviously, Miato um, Takain uh, was murdered in the second week of the coup in in Epiro. Now in Yangon, I know that the police chief at the time uh, was far more sympathetic to the CDM movement or what at the time you know would become the cdm movement did you have a fear that if you join these protests you could suffer uh violent repercussions from the military or the police 
Yes, I was concerned, but I already know that whoever involved in this kind of movement are at risk, and I already calculated those risks, and I decided, regardless of whatever happened, I, I think I'm doing the right thing, so I would do it anyway. Okay, and and ultimately, you know, you not only joined um, the protests. But you went on to join uh, this this whole network uh, as it was, and uh, and you engaged in a lot of different types of activities to support the the democratic movement. So can you just tell us um, what it was that you that you got into? What it was that you were actually doing in those first first months of the coup, and where it went from there? Well, let me start. Um, give you a brief background of our group, uh, which is an anti-coup protest network. It was founded on the 1st of February and in order to, you know, respond to this military, um, military coup. But I joined the group on around the second, second week of the, uh, second week of the coup. So this protest network, um, they organize and coordinate with other protest networks and then provide humanitarian assistance and media support um, across the country. And I, I will explain uh, details of the three main activities that the group has been doing um, in, in coming um, a, few, a few minutes. So um, when I first arrived, the coup, it was, uh, when I first arrived, the joined the group, it was February. So the activities that we were doing, uh, February, March, is completely different from what we have been doing right now. So during the first, first month, uh, which is in February, all of us, um, has been focusing on, um, scenario building and brainstorming so that we could plot the propaganda through different social media outlets. Every day, uh, we will, um, some were reading news and making the analysis and then uh, written the uh, relevant statement in both in English and Myanmar language. For example, when we knew, when we knew Nyatadokhan passed away, we like other protest network, we also written a very strong state statement regarding to that very unfortunate events and urge the public, you know, not to accept this kind of oppression and to join a wider uh, protest movement. And other group members, um, they will try to assess why coup happened, what were the, um, driving factors and who are the stakeholders that was working with the military behind the scene. And we got the, how can I say, and we, we will coming to the conclusion that there were some actors actually support, actually supporting the military in a way that, um, they think, um, the coup is kind of the right way, uh, as they believe um, the NLD in the party has become bigger and bigger, and 
But when looking back in the past well, five years, they did not see um, very good progress with the government term, and and they are worried that regardless of the uh, progress the NLD has made in the election, the NLD won again. So there are many ethnic parties that uh, they are not satisfied with the results, and they think this is this is not something that should be that should happen. And uh, um, we we also heard some political party saying that they still feel there are some voter fraud in the previous elections. Uh, some were really concerned. Uh, what if they couldn't win the election in coming years? Then uh, NLD just become one party, you know, like a monopoly to to take over the political scenes. So our group were discussing about it and thinking that there are some stakeholders mm, are not aligned, uh, are not really helping in the uh, protest movement. Usually, they are. They have. Uh, you know, like they are the political analysts. They are a good writers. They they are very active in this human rights. But they just suddenly become quiet, and then I think they. We think that they would like to um, just um, purge out the NLD, not because of they support the military, but they just do not want to see the NLD government in power and. In a way, they are supporting the military. So these are kind of uh, small discussions going on in the group. And then we deciding what would be the scenario in coming month and two months and how we as a protest network can coordinate with uh, different protest networks across the country and and then to be sure the safe safety of our groups and the people that we are coordinating with and and then and then in the group as i mentioned earlier i'm the only one who doesn't have a background in politics and human rights so i find it quite challenging to catch up with all the stakeholders they were mentioning all the political parties they are saying and all the past events that um that could lead to the coup so different people have different tasks and some are um working with um, undercover journalists and taking care of the propaganda. Uh, you said that you joined in the second week of the coup. Uh, so I'm just, I'm just wondering, did you, did you know about this, uh, this group beforehand and you were just hesitant to join or did you join, you know, as soon as you found out about, about this, uh, this organization and what they were doing? No, I contacted him on 3rd or 4th of February. So by the time he replied me that he is uh, welcoming other members to join the group, so I joined. But I have no idea what the group was doing at the time, who were the crew members. On the first day I arrived at the group, I see a bunch of people, you know, discussing, writing something that I don't really understand on the whiteboard they are. Build, they are having a scenario buildings. I was just watch and stare. Then the person that I contacted, he introduced me to the other group members. Then I realized the group members, they belong to uh, some 
have uh, some are uh, the leaders from the poli political party. Some are members of parliament. They just you know won the election, but the coup happened. So now they are they, they are they are no longer going to the parliament section. Some are. Uh, civil society activists. I, I just got to meet those people on the first day, but I, I had no idea with them before I joined the group. Okay. Very interesting. So so you you were you were given an opportunity to find a way to help with the, the pro democratic movement and you just took that opportunity and you'll figure it out when you're there and, and you'll make those contacts and you'll learn the subject matter. That's that's basically what it was like. Yeah, pretty much it. Nice, nice. So, okay, uh, that's a very interesting thing. Now, you're talking about this this analysis that you were doing, and it sounds like a very complicated operation and a very in-depth analysis. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated about these anti-NLD, not necessarily pro-coup, but not anti-coup stakeholders. So it, it sounds like you're saying that there were a lot of people who did not come out and say, yes, the coup is a good thing and we should we should do this, but they also were not condemning the coup. Uh, would you say that they went quiet because they were trying to gain some advantage in this turbulent time? Or do you think they went quiet just because they were very afraid of what would happen if they spoke out? I personally think they went quiet because there is some benefits associated to it. I think um, they do not like seeing the NOD uh, party getting so much in power and some presume it has become only one party dominating the political landscape, which, you know, it's also um, risky because there will be no check and balance of power if the the in the political landscape you do not find many political parties representation right so i think that is the reason that they want quiet okay interesting now i want to move back uh you said you were producing uh propaganda um you know notes of encouragement uh public statements condemnations of the coup uh, these sorts of, of uh, press and media activities. And you specifically said that you produced content both in English and in Myanmar. Uh, I'm wondering, what was your your target audience? Who were you really uh, speaking to through these projects? It is a general public. And people who already came out to the street to do the peaceful protests, so we encourage people who are still not joining the open protest for them to realize the situation, to realize that this is our fight, we need to do it. And for the people who are um, already joining the protest movement, it is also an encouragement for them to keep doing what we are doing. And at that time, there are also propagandas from the military side. Absolutely. But it, it, the part that really got my attention was you said that you published in English and most of the military propaganda seems to be in Burmese. Um, they, they seem to be very much targeting the local community. Do you feel that you were targeting the international community as well 
uh, trying to make them aware of the situation or trying to gain support from them? Or what was the motivation in, in producing English language content? Yeah, when you were asking me these questions, I realized that I what I've answered before only to the general public, Myanmar population, it, it is it is not correct. We are doing both language so that both the international community and Myanmar community know what is happening. And some of our statements have sent to some of the internet international communication uh, organizations and to the previous special envoy to Myanmar as well. I don't know how to pronounce her name, like some burger something something. I can't remember either. I'm ashamed. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. So some of our group members were attending different uh, meetings, you know, with the international stakeholders. So uh, when they will be in the meeting, at the same time, they will be communicating me through um, Signal or um, apps and telling what, just briefly telling me what are the discussions and how we, you know, as an anti-crew protest network, want to give, what message we want to convey to them. So as soon as they finish that meeting, I need to be ready with the statements or with the message that this is the, this is, this is the idea. Uh, this is the message that we want to present. So this is kind of my my job as well. It's a very sort of high speed, high intensity sort of environment uh, to be working. Yes, very frustrating. And uh, and uh, he, my my comrades, would just explain me three, four words, and he was like, "Oh, Liberty, I I know you can do it." And I was like, "What? I don't know how to do it." And then in writing in English, I was struggling so much. And sometimes I was like, it's become too much. I couldn't do it. But then, okay, if I don't do it, what could I do? Right? So I was like, okay, I there is no no options. I just need to do it. Yeah, I mean, sink or swim. <laughs> there, there is no third option there. Um, but, it, you know, it's really impressive. And, um, you know, your the work that your group was doing, definitely had an impact um you know i know that i've i've seen uh, some of the results of uh, of your work i know a lot of people were reached by it and and you had you had quite a presence in in february you had quite a presence in march but i know that after that things started to to change uh, rather rather quickly can you can you tell us about what was going on at that time yes um um, after after February and March, we got a lot of crackdown to the uh, open protests, and to you know this is something that we need to consider whether um, uh, we we could continue you know organizing mass protest movement. Mem- our, some our, some of our members like will be actually in the protest or uh, how how would we stay drive the protest going but not risking you know not losing our members this this, this has uh, become our main concern and then I was actually had to run in one of the protest movement and thank God I wasn't get arrested on that day it was that day was a kind of a big event um 
uh, GSCN was organizing this protest movement near downtown and it also happened to be the more national day so I was I, I already guessed that the military would really crack down on that protest because all the ethnic nationalities came together to march towards Sule and they would be wearing all their traditional costume and and showing that ethnics are in solidarity due to against the military coup. I, I knew that it would happen but I also would like to go. Luckily, I was about 10 or 15 minutes late uh, to arrive the event. They, they were starting you know, 15 minutes earlier, but I, I, I was just late as usual with many things. And at the, by the time I arrived, the group was already um, spread out because the military already arrested one person. So the remaining people are trying to gather again in a different place and trying to um, um, trying to do as it planned. So after some time, the group marched, you know, gather and started marching. And before we could really, you know, move forward like 10 stops, the military started to crack down. And, and then after that, we heard the uh, they opened the gunfire, so everyone's were running to the different directions, and I was also running. And I arrived. I was hiding in someone's house, and in that house, there are also uh, many people's hiding. And and you, I realized that oh my god, it is getting more and more serious. They would actually shoot you and would actually you know arrest you. I know it would happen, but I didn't witness this before but now I'm witnessing and during the protest one of the you know um, good things that I recognize is how people come into the unity and show the support uh, all the houses who are hiding who are hiding the protester in their house they will prepare food for you and they will just let you stay in their house as much as they think you will be safe to go out again. So th this is just a, you know a, a bit of a background that how the crackdown could get ex uh, escalated. And so from our group, uh, after two, two, three months after the coup, and until now, what we have been doing is uh, three, three activities. The first activities is we still support the uh, civic protester and resistant group across the country in terms of the logistic support such as safety gears, defense equipment, uh, medical aid support for safe houses so that they can go and hide and telecommunicate uh, transportation and communication charges. So this is what we have been uh, doing and the other activity is we are collaborating with one media agency and we are supporting the undercover journalists for them to collect the news and information in a more you know safer way and to be effective we provide them uh, allowance for their transportation for their food and for their um, communication charges and when it is needed we also provide the safe houses for the undercover journalists so that they can 
continue their work, but also hide at the same time. And and if it's required, like camera, mobile phone, laptop, and other media-related equipment that they would need, uh, we also support them. But that also depends on how much funding we, we have in hand. And we also support not only to the uh, undercover journalists, we also support to the remaining family members of the fallen heroes, injured protesters, and people who have been living under seriously effective area. Seriously effective area, I mean, there are some townships in Yangon which has a lot of, uh, which experience a lot of crackdown by the military, for example, in, say, North Okala, South Okala, those areas. We also provide uh, humanitarian assistance to to those people, and by working with other stakeholders, you know, other network, we provide uh, supports to the uh, people from the IDP comes, IDP comes. So, and the other activity that we support is to the CDMers. So for that one, there are two. Two kinds of support, food aid support and financial support. So this is how we shift our activities from the first two months and until now. Since the beginning, we, we have the framework that how this group would like to move forward, but we can do a lot of active, we, we can do a lot of things for the protest movement, but later, you know, that activities somehow need to be adapted to the situation so let me let me jump in here because there, there was a lot of information there's some very interesting insights so just before we move on i want to make sure that anyone who's listening has the opportunity to understand um the different terms and the different concepts you you mentioned the idps you mentioned the cdm uh, and and you're talking about um, logistical support for resistance groups. So can you quickly just go through what these letters mean and what they really refer to and how they differ from one another, uh, just for the benefit of anyone who might not know these terms? Um, people uh, who join civil disobedience movements, sometimes we call them as SCDMers. Majority of them are the government officials working in the government departments. So they stopped going to work so that the government um, would, would, wouldn't function anymore. So this is their way of against the military coup and uh, the military coup to be in the power for any longer. And some people, also, although they are working in the private bank, private companies, and they also stopped working, in, they also stopped going to work, so that uh, them not working somehow would stop the uh, government-related job, not delay the work. For example, people who are working in the shipping company, logistics company, when they don't go to work, all the paperwork, paperwork, um, good stock up. So things cannot proceed in a way that the government-related job, they cannot function. That is why people are joining civil disobedience movement uh, to root out this military regime. To go back to the IDP camps, it's 
they are they are internally displaced people even before the coup due to our long history of um civil war between the um eaos ethnic arms organizations and the military many people um from karin for example from kachin uh from chin they are they can no longer live in their own places so they are living in the idb camps so when the coup happened you know their life has become even harder than what they have already been that is why we are also supporting to those idp camps so when the coup happened some people just have to relocate to the idp camps for example one of my colleague now he he and his wife who is about to deliver the baby needs to stay in the idp camps because his hometown has experienced a lot of military crackdown um they them uh a lot of um arm clashes between pdf and the military forces are happening so they are living in the idp camps therefore then idp camps need more support than before that is why we are also supporting to some of the idp camps uh, as much as we can that also depend on the funding that we receive the donation from our donations mainly come from myanmar nationals who are living in the country or who are abroad and then some of the international um uh, uh international foundations how could i say that they also contribute somehow and some of the generous foreigners they also contributed to 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 the funding as well so we allocated our funding to three different activities that we have been doing so just to recap one would be to the civic protester the and then the second activity is related to undercover journalists and fallen heroes family members injured protester and the third is to the dissident group yeah and i think it, you know it's an excellent thing to be doing because what a lot of people don't think about and what a lot of people don't realize is that in a country where the democratic government has been displaced and where the military does not care about human life the these people who have been displaced who who are living in camps or are living in the mountains or living in the jungles they have they have no support like if if it's not for organizations like yours and for ngo organizations and for just everyday people donating their money in whatever way they can these people would have absolutely no no help and no support and and no protection which which i think is something that we we tend to forget sometimes we tend to think that oh there's someone who's responsible for taking care of these people but there isn't they're, they're on their own uh and and they need people uh, to to help them and i think it is the same with the cdm we think of the cdm as just well you know you're boycotting you're you're striking you're not going to work but the difference is that the junta have rewritten the laws so they can accuse the the cdmers of uh, of actual treason and they've threatened them with with um capital punishment for refusing to go to work and lengthy prison sentences so that the stakes are incredibly incredibly high and I, i think that many people especially those outside of the country do tend to forget the realities that uh, that the victims of the military are facing at this moment 
Well, for the CDMs, you know, we it is our right, the people, not to go to work or to resign when they think this job no longer fit them. But with this military coup, when you refuse to go to work, when you want to resign in this moment, it is against the law. You know, you don't have any right anymore. And people who join the CDM is not just about not working. They have, um, they really need to be strong enough how to survive. They need to think about different options to have the income because when they stop going to the work, you know, they are expelled, like with the official letter from their department or, or some don't receive the letter from their relevant um, department, but they will, they will not get the salary anymore. So it is really, really tough for them to think about what could they do for the, in my opinion, for the government officer, you know, working in this government department, this administrative work, office procedure is, is something that they know, you know, all, all their life. And now they have, they try to abandon this job and start to thinking. What else we could do so that we could support our family is really challenging. I could give you like one personal example. My cousin, um, he is a medical doctor and once he joined the civil disobedience movement, he, he has been noticed by the military forces. That is because his supervisor informed the military that other medical workers joined the civil disobedience movement because he persuaded to do so. Then the military coup came and arrested him. He was lucky enough not to get arrested and since then he has been in the hiding and he has no income and since he need to stay in a different villages, um, he also experienced a lot of, um, a lot of, how can I say, skin related problems because there is no good shelter, no um, personal hygiene, you know, no, the waters are not clean. So, so just, 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 this is just um, very small examples that many civil disobedience movement people are facing Absolutely. the problems that we can't even imagine. I mean, I, I remember that we saw um, a period where we had a lot of people who had fled from the cities, either because they were afraid of being arrested or because they wanted to join um, the resistance groups, and they started contracting malaria, or they started contracting a range of other diseases. And, you know, famously, this happened with with Pintochon. Uh, and we don't think about it again because, especially outside in the West, a, a strike is a strike. You understand that people have a right not to go to work, and they will lose their revenue. Um, but you know that's that's a deal that they make. But in in the Myanmar context, when these people strike, they may have to pack up and leave the city. They may have to leave live you know in the wild with with no medical care, with without proper facilities, with no way to protect their families. It's it's a really cruel decision that the military is forcing on these people you know, support the military-run government or escape with your family, not knowing if you can feed them, not knowing if you can take care of them. 
it's uh, I think I think it's a very uh, very despicable thing that they that they've done to to the government employees. Um, but yeah, I want to go back to the story you were telling about that the the Mon National Day march to Sule Pagoda. Um, I'm curious, can you remember how close did you get to Sule Pagoda that day? No, we were not close at all. We are only we were only ten feet away from the starting point. You know, <laughs> after that, they cracked down, and then people got really scared. People were screaming, and the um, the the organizers of this protest uh, movement they they used the loudspeaker trying to calm down the the mass people that it is okay we already prepare for that right so we just hold you hold the hands together and we will continue marching and then after you know like about one minute people are like okay calm down and then we make a line of you know um Roll, you know, roll by roll again. We just grab the hands of whoever just next to us, and then we are starting to march again. I think after three steps, there was a gunfire. At that time, the organizers cannot calm down the audience anymore. People are start running, so hitting each other. Someone was just fallen on the street. He just got up and run to the very different directions. Wow. So was that was that live gunfire or was it blank rounds? Do you know? Real ammunition is a real one. So that, that early in the protest, one. they were already using real ammunition against peaceful protesters. Yes, it's a real ammunition. And after that, they came to search those protesters who were hiding in the house. They came into the small, small, small street. You know, from the main road to the small, small street. And that at that time, when they were searching, they again opened the gunfire. It's just in front of me. Yes. I was recording. Wow. So this, so this would have been that moment when it, when it became real, when that realization that these people are willing to murder really sort of yes. became a, a, re a reality. Um, yeah. So, so uh, this is the thing, and I noticed that you're saying that you were giving logistical support to uh, these resistance groups uh, that started forming in response to the violent crackdowns that the military and the police started doing. Of course, by this time, we know that the police units were infiltrated by military officers. So the difference between military and police started to break down. Um, did... Did any of uh, of your comrades get uh, arrested in this period? Um, honestly speaking, um, with the protest network that I've been working, I don't really know who were the frontliners. You know who were um, leading the uh, protests because we divided the responsibility of each person. So the only the leader of that, that component, um, organized protest movement would know. I didn't really know whether one of our comrades got arrested on that particular day. But I don't just mean that, that particular day. I mean, in this period when they, they really started 
amping up these these aggressive crackdowns and when we started seeing these nighttime raids happening uh, as well. Um, yeah, if you if you say this entire coup period, yes, yes, many of our comrades will get arrested. Some are um, some got arrested because they got they organized the protest movement. Some got arrested because they set up a few operations in the urban areas and. And in the past few months, one of our close members got arrested. And the next day, the military, we presume that the military got the information and they came to search us in the apartment that we usually, you know, work and had meetings. They broke the apartment and searched for us. But luckily, we didn't use that apartment for a long time ago. So we, the remaining, all, all of us remain safe. But then, um, a few weeks ago, since the military couldn't find the owner of the apartment, they burned down his parents' house and it turned into ashes. So, yeah, so my comrades, family, all of them are in hiding and he was in a different place. So they actually did that. You know, when you see the case, in Chen State, and on that day, I was just um, have a flashback of my comrade house burned down. So, so hang on, let, let's clarify this because this is almost unimaginable. So, first of all, you're telling me that your comrades were arrested, but they weren't arrested for violence. They weren't arrested for, you know, what we would consider to be criminal activities they were arrested for organizing a, a peaceful protest. There is no other charge. They're not arrested for carrying weapons. They're not arrested for trying to kill someone. They're just arrested for protesting for their democratically elected government. That, that's what you're saying. They would, they would arrest you if you are involved in the protest movement, you know, just as a person protesting. They would also arrest you if you organize this peaceful protest movement because they think you are persuading other people to do this unlawful protest. By them, it is unlawful to protest, you know, on the street. And if you are also having um, operations with arms and other ammunition, you will also get arrested because you, you are doing something that against them. So, and if you are a civil disobedient movement people, you will also get arrested. And if you are uh, also a journalist, you're trying to write the real information from the ground reporting to the general public, you will also get arrested. So, so the situation that, that, that we're in at this point, and, and this wasn't even um, all, you know, all that long ago, you know, the, this, this coup only happened about 10 months ago. The situation you're saying is that just being on the street um, supporting the democratic movement is now a crime or telling other people to support the democratic movement is a crime. Or I would presume that the money that you donated to help support uh, the IDPs and help support the CDMers would also have been a criminal without hurting anyone 
without yes. violating anyone, you would become a criminal. Yeah, we would become a criminal, and it is a treason. And treason, treason of all crimes, even higher crime. And then you're saying that they tried to find the owner of of the apartment where you had operated, and because they couldn't find the owner, they decided yeah. to go to the parents of the person and burn down their house, even though the parents yeah. were not involved. Um, the, his parents are, are pro-NLD supporters. So with the informants, I think the military got the information that these um, occupants in this house are pro-NLD. Well, the majority of the country is pro-NLD. The election proves this fact. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is unthinkable, really, from, from, from an outsider perspective. The idea of someone who works for, whether the military or whether a, a civilian government, burning down your house to punish you for something that your your son has done or not done. They didn't even prove that. They didn't arrest him. There was no trial. You know, this level of, of cruelty and destruction is, is just unthinkable. Really, it's difficult to yeah. imagine. To, to continue, you know, this kind of um, experience, when um, the military can come to search uh, your son or your daughter and if they don't find that person they would just took away any of the family member they want if there is a mother or a father if they think they would like to take two of them they would just do it they would just just take them you know like like they catch a bird it, 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 it's it's one of those strange situations where you know, we could very easily look up international law and find all of the ways in which this is this is unacceptable. But at the same time, we shouldn't even have to have this discussion. It's so obvious that if you want to arrest one person, you can't just arrest a different person instead. It 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 breaks logic to even think about this. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, they just want to keep the family member as a hostage. For me, my main concern is what if they arrest my mom, my dad, or my sister? You know, it is not only you who will get arrested or tortured. It could be your family member if they don't get you. They will do anything to harm you. So this is really a scary thing. So, so we're looking at the same tactics that we would see in North Korea, for example. If, if you escape or if you criticize the government, it's your family that will be put into into a camp or into a prison. Yeah. yeah. This, this, Pretty much similar. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Like this is, it, it's just horrifying to know that this is happening in the 21st century. Um, and, and it's happening to people that we know have not done anything immoral and have not done anything violent and have not hurt anybody. They're just angry that the military stole their freedom and stole their democracy i'm just i'm just surprised but um but you know let's let's continue on your your journey so your activities took a clearly took a big turn after this this moment when you when you saw that uh the violence is very 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 real and the police and the military do not care and you started focusing in a slightly different direction now you said after that 
um, the place was raided. Uh, you said that many of your comrades were detained. Are you still uh, operating? Do you still have uh, an organization? Are you still keeping up activities? Just to clarify one thing, we are not an organization. We are just um, anti-coup protest network, and everyone in the um, in the network work as a volunteer basic, so we don't get any pay. We do our own like job, you know, put into half an income, and then we commit in this in this uh, journey, like for the human rights and for the democracy. Yes, we are state operating, but uh, things have become very different since four or five months ago. Many of our people get arrested, and some are. Um, not in the urban area anymore because they need to go to the hiding. Some are joining the EAOs in different parts of the country. So not many people left. Therefore, we need to adjust how we do our activities. Okay. Um, and again, just for the benefit of anyone who might not be familiar, uh, the EAOs in this context refers to the ethnic uh, armed organizations who exist around the around the country yeah um eos are ethnic armed organizations and in the country there are many eos um and some have signed the nca um uh, ceasefire agreement uh with the uh, previous government and some they don't during the revolutionary period and it is very obvious that some of the eos are supporting the general public, uh, they are determined to fight the military regime and work towards a more uh, uh, more fair and equal society and they all have been, you know, uh, demanding uh, federal democracy country. So there are many people who are joining the EAOs, getting a training uh, from the, those EAOs and and you may also hear the term PDF become the, uh, people's defense force. And, and, um, the parallel government was saying that, uh, the PDF, people defense force are under the command of the NUG government. But some of the PDFs, uh, respond to that statement that they are not under the command of the NUG government, but they against the military coup. So they are in this fight to root out the military regime, but they are on their own way. And then I, during this one and two months, I hear the new term LDF, local defense force. So they defer themselves as an LDF one. They are fighting against the military coup, but they are not under the NUG government. And they also do not receive the support from the NUG government. And there are also um, Gloria um, um, fighters in the urban city. So some some of the Gloria fighters, they, they see themselves as they are under the command of the NUG, some are not. So there are different entities uh, in the country uh, fighting against the military. So just to recap that, um, we have people like you who are not involved in, in actual sort of conflict. You deal with 
analysis and financial support and and supporting the CDM and things like this. And there's a very large network of people engaged in these types of activities and propaganda activities and reporting. And uh, you've mentioned underground journalists that you were uh, assisting as well to, to find the truth and publish the truth. But then we have this very complicated interaction between the groups that are engaging uh, in the fight. And we have the ethnic armed organizations who may be allied to the democratic government, or they may not be, depending on on the situation. We have the LDF defense forces, local defense forces that are not allied to the democratic government, but are working generally towards the same goal. We have the PDF, People's Defense Forces, that are allied to the democratic government. And now now apparently we also have these underground guerrillas, the UG. So it's, it's a very complicated, very intricate system that I think a lot of people like to oversimplify. And we can't pretend that the PDF is the same as the LDF, is the same as the EAO, because they're not, because they're all very different um, all very different machines. So this, the work that, that you do in, in your uh, resistance network, focusing on, on trying to get different information from different stakeholders and trying to assist people who need assistance, um, th- this is a very big brief. This is a very big task. So does this come with any daily challenges? Has this really changed the way that you have to go through your life and the way that you have to uh, take care of your day-to-day necessities? Um, So the most important things for our group member is the safety of all the group members. Unless we live, we cannot do the operations and support the revolution, right? So the safety is our main concern and some of the members are already in the ethnic areas so that they know they are safe and they can coordinate with different groups and contact the activity you know from the EOs areas that have a coordination um, network with people from different cities from different states and region so this is one thing uh, how we look after ourselves and and continue the activities are the members who cannot leave the city or where they are currently living to the ESO area they just need to be very careful with um, how they do things try to do things very concretely you know try to um, act like we are just an ordinary person, not interested in politics, not interested in the movement, just just normal people, you know, think about themselves, work, go to work. And sometimes we need to relocate to different safe houses if we get the information that the searching has become very intensified or we get the information that it is best if we leave the current place. So I've experienced living three different places um, since the beginning of the coup um, um, until now. And it was frustrated because it is not your usual place when you are in a different place. No matter how good the condition of the house is, you don't feel like it is your home. You know, you are there for maybe a few weeks or a few days and you need to 
settle and I have a very big sleeping problems. Even in my own place, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fall asleep easily. So, in staying in a place that is not my usual place, it's make me harder. But when thinking about my comrades, you know, who have been living in the EOS area, very basic accommodation, and they don't have not not variety of food or how can I say very less options. Um, the healthcare system is very minimal. So thinking my comrades, I think I shouldn't be complaining. I am living way better than how they they have been living. But but even so then, uh, so you're saying that you basically have to live every day knowing that you might be told you have to pack up now and you have to leave for yes. for safety. We need to be alert. We need to be alert all the time. And so I assume that means you you don't have many things with you. You would have to be able to pack up and move very quickly. Um, this is the ideal, uh, but for me, I have a lot of stuff in my place. <laughs> but I know if something happened, there are only two two bags that I would carry and run. So you have a plan already. Just, you know exactly what you will do. If yeah, that yeah, I already packed. I've packed since the beginning of the call. Because I... Yeah, um, just to give you an example, like I think that was a month ago, the military truck arrived our apartment. And at the time, I was thinking that they knew about us and came to search me and my comrades. That was my first thought. So I turned, tried to turn off the light or the icons and already shaking, don't know what to do, don't know what to hide. But luckily, and unluckily for other person, they didn't came for us. They went to the next door and yelling at the person name and calling him to come out. And that was 1.30 a.m. in the morning. Everything was completely quiet. The only screaming that we hear is from the military um forces they try to they we so i was i was hiding in my own apartment and peeking at the window and looking what was going on outside we saw all those military forces enter the that person apartment searching him um like about four trucks four trucks on that night and after an hour they opened their gunfire in the air and they got that person beating him and then put it, put him in the car. You know, that was very, very shocking. I, I was trying to say that you you need you need to understand that any slip of information could lead you to get arrested or you mentally and physically be ready to pack and run. This is how people who are involved in the revolutionary movement, not only me, whoever involved in the movement has to, has to bear with it. I mean, that's, you know, that's, it's, it's just strange to think about what it would be like to, to be in that position where you see them coming and you think they're coming for me and then they take someone else and it, you know, you would be relieved that you're not being taken away to jail, but at the same time, somebody else is, and and you can see that happening. 
it's it's difficult to imagine what something like that would be like, what effect that would have. Yeah, it was very sad, and we feel very guilty. Guilty that why only, you know, a handful of us survive, and why those people and our friends are spending time in jail and get torture. So this, do we? Do you know from any of you? Have any of your friends been, or your colleagues or comrades been arrested and subsequently released? A friend of friends, like she involved in the protest movement in the earlier days, so she spent nearly two months in the prison, and then finally released. And some of the, um, some of the friends of friends who were taken to the prison and then released and then got arrested again. So we don't know why did they let those people go on the first time and then got arrested again. So for me, whenever I know someone um, who you know can came out from the prison, just urging them to leave the current place and go into hiding because they will keep you on the radar or they could just come and get you anytime they find something suspicious and they would accuse it's, it's you who done that. Yeah, exactly. And so these people who, who were released, whether temporarily or permanently, did they say anything about the treatment that they received in prison? I've never spoken any of them personally. I just got the secondary information from my comrades that how much torture they had. But so that that is an actual report that is coming from the people who have come my out from prison. Yeah. yeah, from my comrades who spoke to the victim directly. So this is not just a rumor flying around. This is this is real. Like these people are being tortured in no. prison. This is super real. You when you see their face in bruises, their body in you know all the bruises, you would know. This is the truth. So, and and this might be a, 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 an awkward question. I don't know what your circumstances are, but has has your activity affected your relationship with your family or your ability to to spend time with them? Uh, completely. I. I mean, I. I have been living alone like for quite a while, but with the COVID and with the coup, I could really I couldn't meet my family. Um, but um, when I was affected infected with COVID nineteen during the coup period, when my mom told me she would like to come and look after me, I said no because I'm so worried that if they find out something and if they, if they would come and look for me, they will find my mom. So I told her not to come. I try, you know, surviving by myself. And after witnessing so many traumatic experience, I think my anxiety level just got intense. I'm I'm feeling scared all the time. You know, sometimes I feel guilty because compared to my comrades, my other friends, I think and yeah it is true i haven't done as much as they have done but i'm feeling guilty all the time and uh, i'm feeling afraid all the time and i feel like i'm such a coward but i just 
starting to have a mental breakdown. So last month in October, one of my friends helped me to connect to one of the psychologists so that with the support, you know, I could calm down a bit, falling asleep a bit and still a bit healthy to, to continue the work. But at a personal level, it affects you in a tremendous way that I, I don't know how to, how to even describe. I, I don't see no future. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. Even when, when I am sometimes having an argument with my parents, I would just hang up the call saying that, okay, I will stop this conversation because tomorrow I don't know I will survive or not. You know, those are very harsh words I shouldn't be saying. But this has become my mentality that, okay, tomorrow I, I don't know I will be survive or not. Okay, I, I will let this conversation be just ended. Yeah. I mean, the thing that that you're saying, they're just, you know, for me as an outsider to imagine something like this is, is very difficult because, you know, I've, I've never had to deal with things like this. The majority of people never have to deal with things like this. And if you look back to January of this year, I'm, I'm sure you never would have imagined being in the situation that you are in now. So I think your your commitment to to the movement is incredible um, because I, I know that there are a lot of people who have left, who have, have tried to cross over the border to, to get out of the country. And I think from what you've said, it is very, very, very clear why a person would want to leave, why a person would want to get away from that situation. So it's... It's very commendable that that you stay and that you continue to do the work that you do and you continue to help the people who don't have the option of fleeing. But I don't know. I, I don't have yeah. words to describe what it is that I'm hearing. I also, I also understand to those who, you know, fled the country because, you know, there are people who involved a lot in the movement and their names already been targeted so they have no choice you know no options but to leave the country to keep them alive so that they could um, support in the revolutionary movement but there are also people who just left the country because they don't see any perspective you know any future by living in the country i i understand them but sometimes when I see people, especially my peers, my friends, who just go into a normal life, you know, without involving in the movement, um, carry on with their career, uh, personal development, education, I have a bit of negative feelings, kind of resentment, grudges, upset, those feelings. But then um, I ask myself the question, who asked you to join this movement? Who would blame you if you don't join the movement? Right? The, the answer is so clear. I joined the movement because I think it is the right thing to do. And I joined the movement because I want to contribute something uh, in this democratic movement to restore the human life, um, to build a more 
a prosperous country. I, I aim to see the country transform into a federal democratic country. So this is my decision, my choice. So I don't need to feel bitter about anything. Who involved, who don't involve, who has done what. I just need to pop talk myself that not to have those negative feelings and do as much as I can. Or I also go into hiding or flee the country whenever I need to or whenever our members need to. This is the reality. Um, this, is, this is incredible, really, what I'm hearing. And, and what we have to remember is that these experiences that you're talking about are something that probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Myanmar people have had to go through over the last 10 months. I think it really highlights the scale of, of the crisis and, and the fact that the scars of this coup are going to last in the country for, for quite a long time, no matter what the end of this situation will be. There will be ramifications. But I know because you've spoken about this in the past, that one of the, the reasons that you're still there, one of the reasons that you continue doing this is because you, you have a very strong belief that this, this resistance, uh, the pro-democratic movement, the, the, if we can call it the societal, uh, Myanmar society movement that, that is happening right now needs to be done in a certain way. It needs to be done with, with certain values and principles at the forefront. So can, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the philosophy that you have going into the, the activities that you engage in and the, de the pro-democratic movement? Um, um, the, first, the first thing that I would like to say is for those who are still surviving, don't live with the survival guilt. Because as long as we live, we have chances to fulfill our, you know, end goal. And it is really okay to put safety as our priority because freedom and security are our, our fundamental human rights. So go into hiding, go into somewhere else if you need to, but please stay alive. You know, the fight is not only to end the military regime. After that, we will need a lot of human resources, skilled people, you know, people like you to rebuild the country. So just, just stay alive. And then in this very dark moment, you will feel discouraged. You will, you will have resentful, you have fear, you have sadness, but practice integrity, love and empathy. I think this could guide you, guide you or us to go for the, to go for the long run. And when we are in this movement, you know, we try to end the dictatorship regime. Everyone has their strength and their way of doing. And we, for me, I understand that we have the same goal, but when trying to root out the dictatorship, try ourselves not to become one of them. I'm very concerned if some of our behavior, our friends' behavior, 
arrived to the level of the military coup, and when the coup end, there will be still be more problems. There are even now there are so many scars in the society. You know, people got divided a lot during the revolution. Even the family members they don't speak anymore because of different politics and belief. So try to reflect on what you have been doing. Be always conscious. So that we don't stray from our ethical values and our end goal. And I also would like to say, this fight, this revolution, is not an event for people to gain self benefit, to become famous, or to portray superiority and heroism. The revolution is our bigger chances for us, you know, for our all our ethnic peoples to come together to unite. To find the common ground、um, in the country, you know, for all the people in the country, regardless of our belief, races, sexual orientation, religion, in order to end the dictator re- regime, because we are fighting to find a way forward to build a more equal, fair, and peaceful country. So,、um, when you make the decision. Be firm on the decision. You don't need to regret it, but don't think about a personal gain out of this politics. It is the life of many people, you know, millions of people, and I do not think I can't imagine if someone would like to take this political crisis as a benefit for them. That would be so upsetting for me. And there will be times when you are doing something for the community or in the revolutionary movement, people wouldn't recognize your effort, or you know, to your to your、uh, contribution. At that time, please don't feel. Just I I tell myself that I don't need to feel discouraged、uh, because I do it because I know. What is right, and I do it because it is for the good cause. I do it because I stay true to my moral values.、Um, therefore, I'm telling myself not to hold grudges to those who do not show any efforts in the revolution and who remain silent. But I also told myself to remember and appreciate who stand up and fight for freedom and human rights because negativity and resentment. It would really drain our energy, and I also experienced that it actually drain my energy and focus、uh, to achieve our end goal. Yeah, and and then I would like to bring up the topic of social punishment. You would also notice the trend become really popular in the past three or four months, and people are saying the social punishment, but they. Are doing a personal attack under the name of social social punishment, and I think this is not only wrong, but it doesn't serve any purpose in building a fair and stronger society. With all those negative feelings, all those resentment, even after the coup, even after we win the democracy, how could we come together, you know, unitedly and build a country in the harmony? So just be clear before you do a social punishment. What is the purpose of doing that, or whether you know you are doing it right or not, right or not? And 
And during the coup, I think many of us who are involving um, in the movement realize that we are actually stronger than we think, and we could do many things or a number of things that that we have never done before. We have become super multitasking, and we we are able to do so. So I think this crisis is the test towards our humanity, integrity, and belief. And I know it takes a tremendous amount of efforts and faiths and time to overcome, you know, all the negative and traumatic experience that we, we, we had experienced. But I think if we stay with positivity and as I am Buddhist, I want to say Dhamma, if we put positivity and Dhamma in our heart, we have more chances of winning it. We have more chances to be resilient and we have more chances you know, to remain as who we are and never lose of a value. So positivity and Dhamma is something that um, keep me um, alive alive today. And on the final note, I would say that if you need um, psychosocial support, um, don't be ashamed or don't be hesitant to ask from the professionals because different people have unique life paths and experience and some people have you know prior traumatic experience so their uh, window of tolerance is really low compared to other and when you are facing the situation like in Myanmar political crisis economic crisis with the pandemic you will get so shaky so if you need help ask for it and asking help is not a sign of weaknesses in the past I really hesitant to ask for help. For me, I do not take it as a sign of weaknesses. I take it as a sign of burden. I will be put a burden towards other if I ask for help. But later I realized that it is not, not a sign of burden or weaknesses. You just honestly saying what you have been through. And if there is something, some, someone could support you you will be able to overcome those challenges and when you are healthy and mentally resilient you could do so many things in life right so in this in this particular movement it is about our goal to fight for the democracy to restore the human right to restore the justice so you you need to be physically and mentally healthy if you need support ask around and don't feel don't be hesitant yeah these are these are my thoughts. Um, so I, I, I have to say, I'm very, I'm very taken aback. I'm very, w- without sounding condescending, I'm very impressed that someone who has seen the things that you've seen and has experienced what you've experienced, not just in terms of of the physical impacts of the coup, but but in terms of the psychological impacts of the coup. Mm-hmm that you can still stay as focused on positivity and focused on the idea of the the end goal really the the federal democratic union you know rebuilding the country not just to get rid of the the military dictatorship but to to genuinely build a country where everyone can can be themselves where every nationality and every culture can uh, can coexist uh, and can uh, and can participate in in the governing of the country you know 
I think for a lot of people, it would be very tempting if they've seen such terrible things happening. It would be tempting to harden the heart and start thinking, no, our goal is just removing the military and whatever we do to do that is justified. I'm very, I take heart hearing what you're saying because it shows that you're not and and the, the pro-democracy movement is not going to become the military. It's it the, the desire and the philosophy to rise above that sort of behavior and those sorts of thinking and staying moral and ethical and driven by compassion and driven by these these values that we that we hold in such high, such high esteem is uh, is is such a powerful um, pulse within the movement. I, I I find that very impressive. Thank you. For me, I am so grateful to my comrades um, who inspire me every day. I never until now hear a complaint from them that how much struggle they have, you know, living in in those areas in a very poor condition. Um, they have experienced so much trouble, hustle compared to me, but every time we speak, they would just be saying that we will win this fight and we will be seeing each other again and then we will rebuild the country together so you'd still healthy and be safe and sometimes when I feel like I am complaining I feel so ashamed because I never heard a complaint from my comrades and I've never before the coup I, I didn't know them, but I'm grateful that I met them and I met the true people, you know, in my life. And I also see um, the true colors of other people. So I think um, this is the taking us a positive notes in this revolutionary period. We know what is right or wrong and who is good or who is not, you know, in a way. In every bad situation, you, I think we could figure something out which is positive, right? I mean, this, this is absolutely incredible to me, like this level of resilience and, and just the attitude and the dedication that, that I hear not just from you and you're saying also your comrades uh, and other people who have participated in, in the pro-democracy movement. It's, it, it is unbelievable i think for someone who's who's outside the situation has never had to deal with this to imagine the ability of of the youth of the country being this dedicated and this strong and this resilient to everything that the military throws at them psychologically economically and ultimately violently so i i take heart that that if 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 the democratic movement is driven by people who share your values and your philosophies and have your dedication, then I believe victory is, is assured. It's just a question of when, not a question of if. And hopefully the answer is very soon. So I want to thank you very much for coming on. That was a very edifying interview. I want to thank you for sharing your opinions 
and your thoughts and your insights with us. And thank you for spreading the, the word and spreading genuine news from Myanmar, from the ground, so that everyone in the world can understand the true scale of the situation and the dedication of people like you and your comrades. I also want to thank you and people from your group, you know, giving me a chance to share um, the real stories uh, through this platform. And and from from here, I hope everyone in the country remains safe, healthy, and and never lose ourselves, our value, and fight it to the end. Thank you. As inspiring as it was to hear today's guest, I know from experience that when you're listening from so far away, there can also be a certain kind of helplessness in hearing about the struggle that people like them are now engaged in. Thankfully, we have organized a reliable way for interested listeners to provide valuable assistance to those local communities. All donations will be sent to support the protesters currently resisting the military coup. By taking an active role in helping support the movement, you can ensure that people like today's speaker have even a few more resources to draw on and can manage even another week more in their efforts. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. 